0: Okay, so we're in Mark's gospel, um, and we mentioned last week that Mark drops some bombshells from the very beginning. Uh, He gives us a sentence fragment. He intends to complete that sentence with his gospel, but there are some bombshells there. Have you ever seen the pictures of... uh, Of the first nuclear uh, bomb test That was conducted back in 1945 In the desert of New Mexico Um, They had all these spectators They had some viewing stands and, And everybody had on their military sunglasses And those guys got more than they bargained for Didn't they? Radiation The radiation cloud from that blast in New Mexico Drifted as far as the state of Indiana You know And uh literally if you think about it those of us who've grown up particularly me growing up in the you know in the 50s the nuclear age you know changed and altered the landscape for us and and what mark is saying in his gospel with those opening statements is that you know the landscape is changed now mark's going to take us back into back into the desert for a few minutes this morning um and he's, gonna, he's about to drop another bombshell on us, if you will. So let's read our text. Um, this morning we're going to talk about the voice. The voice in the wilderness. Okay, so I'm going to go back and I'll pull in that sentence fragment from verse 1 and then we'll read through verse 8 in Mark's gospel. You have the, the scripture on the front of your bulletin this morning. It'll be on the screen. Uh, get it on your smartphone. Any way you can get there, get there with us. Okay, Mark chapter 1. Begin with the first one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, his purpose is to proclaim the gospel that victory has been secured for us. That's really good news. And it was secured by a one-man army. And that is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, long expected for centuries, Messiah, Jesus, he is, he says, the Son of God. So immediately, what Mark takes away from us is, in our culture, what we like to do is say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher, don't we? Oh, he was a wonderful storyteller. He's the one that told all those perils, and, and he was a friend of, you know, the outcast and the, the lowly kind of... Mark says says, yeah, he, he he was those things, but here's what you really need to know. He's the Messiah. He's the one that's been waited for for century after century. The anointed one of God. And he is God in the flesh. He is the son of God. Now here comes the next bombshell. Okay, As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now, the word straight there is the word "uthius." We talked last time about the key word in Mark's gospel is "uthus," from the same root. Immediately, this is fast-breaking news. Make straight his path. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier, mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now today I just want to center on, on John the Baptist's message what do we learn from John the Baptist? I reserve the right next week if I want to to talk about the man. but I don't want to talk about the message. We don't have time to talk about the man and the message in one message, OK? So Because the cowboys kick off at noon, all right, I get it. OK. <laughs> like I really care. OK. All right. So what is John's message? He's the voice. In the, what's his message? Okay, three things three things okay he is calling out that the king has come the king has arrived and his you know his his arrival you know in the desert is imminent he's saying the king has come already and then he tells us where we can find the king where we can find the promised one and where does he say that is in the wilderness and then John points to the path, and he tells us, tells us about the road. What is the road that the king will travel? This road that is make, being made straight for him. What is the road that he will travel? Okay, so look at verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is right out of Isaiah chapter 40, the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40, a a quotation from from Isaiah's prophecy. And this is a bombshell, folks. This this particular chapter, go back and read the entire chapter for yourself on your own time, okay? Do that. But this entire chapter is, is, is the place where Isaiah says, the Lord himself will come one day to Jerusalem, to the holy city, and He will show and demonstrate His glory to all the nations. And a messenger will call out and prepare the way that is before Him. And so, what Mark does here is he IDs John the Baptist as the messenger, the forerunner, and that makes Jesus what? It makes Jesus the lord who's coming the lord now if you have the old king james versions of the bible okay which i have some of those on my shelf i don't read them much pulled it out the other day just to just to check and make sure you know that word lord in the old king james will be capital l o r d because in isaiah in chapter 40 the word lord there is the word yahweh It's the great I am is who that is. This is the personal name of God in the Old Testament. Revealed, remember, to Moses when he was standing before the burning bush. It was a name considered so holy in Jewish circles that they did not speak that name out loud. They would not even write it down. And John is saying, "This is the bombshell." He's saying this messenger who is announcing the coming of the Lord is, you know, is is pointing directly at who, at Jesus as the fulfillment, as the Lord who will enter in to Jerusalem. So he starts off his. His gospel with this phenomenal statement, quoting Isaiah, passage from Isaiah, and he's rooting his gospel message in the ancient hope of all Israel for a king who would someday come and would take down every mountain, who would raise up every canyon, who would heal the world of all of its diseases and its brokenness, who would take on all of our enemies. And Mark is clearly stating that that long awaited day. Has arrived. The king's here. So where do we find him? Where does John tell us to go find him? There's only one place identified. It's in the wilderness. The whole theme of chapter 1 in mark's gospel is that we will find him in the wilderness john you see never goes into the city he always lived out in the outlying areas in the wilderness and the people all came where they all came out of the cities to be baptized by john where in the wilderness and Jesus when he shows up he himself in chapter one goes where out into the wilderness to seek John and then he is immediately cast after being baptized by John where is Jesus He's cast out into the wilderness. And then look at the very last verse of chapter 1, verse 45. It says this, And Jesus could no longer openly enter any town, but was out in the desolate places, and people were coming to him there from every quarter. I mean, John's making it real clear. Where do we find him? We look in the wilderness Wilderness its a good word you know, Because it has the word wild in it Any of you teenagers ever been to a wild party? What's that about? A Bunch of teenagers kind of right on the edge Or just over the edge And things are kind of getting out of control And we're really hoping that mom and dad don't come home have you ever watched that Man vs. Wild reality TV show? I mean, what's the premise? Why is it Man vs. Wild? Because it's wild out there. Because it's you know, it, because there are dangers, there are threats, there, there are uncontrollable situations and, and circumstances. There, it's out on the edge, if you will. Now, when Jesus is cast out into the wilderness after the baptism for his temptation, it says he's out there among the what? The wild beasts. Did you ever pause to think about who the recipients of Mark's gospel were? The persecuted church in Rome. The church under persecution. When Mark says he was cast out among the wild beast, there were Christians in Rome being cast into the floor of the Colosseum with lions, with wild beasts. And Mark is saying, you will find him in that wilderness, in that wild, uncontrolled place, in that place of threat and insecurity. That's where you'll find him. The Greek word is erimos, wilderness. It's the place of desolation. Now, the word really denotes, when we think of wilderness, sometimes we think of, right, like the forest. That's not what is pictured here. The erimos, the desolation, is a barren, dry, desert place. Nothing grows there, only Thirst. Only the thirst for water, because there is no water to drink. There's no bread to sustain us. Nothing grows there. It's desolate. It's lonely. We feel isolated. We feel all alone in that wilderness. You getting the picture? This is one of the major themes of Scripture, folks. Think about the Old Testament. Where do you meet God in the Old Testament? Abraham. He's living in Ur, one of the big major cities of the Chaldees. And he's surrounded by all the gods of polytheism and all the statues. And he he follows a still small voice out into the wilderness of Haran. And he meets God out in the desolate place where there's hunger and there's thirst and there's drought. Where does Jacob wrestle, as he said, with God face to face? Isolated and alone. On the other side of the the stream of Jabbok, in the wilderness. Where does Moses encounter God? In the burning bush, tending sheep. In the desert, in the wilderness. And then God carries his people out of Egyptian bondage from building those huge Egyptian cities, and he carries them, as he says, on eagle's wings, but then he plops them down where? In the wilderness. For two years they camp at Mount Sinai. Beside his mountain in the wilderness. And they have to get water from the rock. Because there's no water to drink. They have to learn to depend on him for daily manna. Because there's nothing to grow. There's no food to eat. They have to learn to trust him. Because he has to provide everything. It's Sinai, in principle, they become God's people. And then what happens after that? They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Because they've got to learn to listen, and they've got to learn to trust before they can enter in to the place of promise or the place of rest. Where will we find him? In our wilderness. Because it's the place that we can't stay alive without the intervention of God. Because all of our wells have run dry. And there's nothing to satisfy our hunger. And we're now feeling the effects of starvation. And he alone, he alone must supply what we need to live. That's where Israel met him. That's where we will meet him. I love what Timothy Keller says. And let me just put in an ad here. I had a seminary professor one time who who encouraged us as seminary students to read a lot. But then he said, guys, don't read good books. There are too many good books. Only read great books. And I came across several years ago what I think is a great book by Timothy Keller. It was first titled The King's Cross. It's been retitled now in its second edition. It's called Jesus the King. It is a study of Mark's gospel. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to lean heavily on old Timothy Keller during this series because this is a great book. And I would invite you, hey, pick up a copy and read along. You can even read slow because I won't go too fast for you. (laughs) Timothy Keller says, It's in the wilderness that we learn that he is not, Jesus is not an add-on. He's not a vitamin supplement. Apart from him, Keller says, his saving intervention, we have no hope. All, All of our wells have dried up and our bread has turned moldy. Any of you ever had a wilderness experience? Any of you currently having a wilderness experience? Expect to find him there. Because that's where he will meet you. He won't meet you sitting comfortably on your couch with your hand on the remote control. He will cast you out. It may be a sudden casting out, like you lose your job, or you hear the C word, the cancer word that alters and changes your life from that point on. Or for some of us it may be over the long term and long course of our lives that we have invested ourselves so heavily in our goals, in our agendas, and we have, you know, we have built our personal empires and we've accumulated a certain amount of wealth and money only to find that there is no meaning ultimate meaning there. We can call ourselves Christian, but for most of us in our room, there is something that we put our real hope in. There's that thing that we, that motivates us, that gets us up in the morning and gets us Going and get, gets us ready for the day, and it's 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 that place where we 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 feel like we're a worthwhile person. It's something that we are relying on. We think we think that's the real bread and the real water until it runs out, and it proves to be inadequate in our lives. Something happens to us, and we realize without. That what we're looking for is our real purpose and our real meaning. And that if we don't somehow find it in God, we're going to die. And it's not in our career. It's not in our 401K. It's, it's not in our health, in our vitality, which is fading. It's not in our success. It's not in our, our family it's not in what we project into our, our kids. It's not in our education, in our credentials. None of these things are bad things. They're, they can even be good things. But, th- but none of these things will ultimately bring fulfillment or bring happiness or meaning in our lives. And yet we grasp at them. Blaise Pascal The mathematician, Christian mathematician says, there is within us, every one of us, a God-shaped void. Let me translate that for you. There is a desolate place in here that only he can fill. And we may have been trying to fill it with a lot of other stuff until he pushes us out into the desert where we can meet him. St. Augustine said it this way Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So, where do you find him? In the wilderness. Look at what John is doing out there in the wilderness. For just a minute. He's what doing what? He's baptizing people. Where's he doing it? Jordan River, right? There, there's no river in all of Israel, in all of the region of Palestine, that is muddier than the Jordan River. Just a fact. And John is out there. He's baptizing people as they're coming to him in the Jordan River. Now, this is where I love Timothy Keller's commentary on this idea. Because it helped me for the first time to see something about about that baptism that I hadn't seen before. You see, washings and baptisms were nothing that was new. They had been practiced for centuries by people in in that culture. And and in that, in the Jewish religion in particular. Ceremonial washings and, and baptisms. Now the word baptism, we get from the Greek word baptizo. It literally just means to immerse. To immerse. Something is immersed. But this was not not a new idea. You see, because for centuries before Jews would enter into worship, they would wash their hands in a ceremonial way to indicate that they were were cleansing themselves and confessing their sins before they would go in to worship in the temple or the synagogue into a place where the scripture would be read out loud. And, And the Gentiles, the Gentiles, get this, they were required to take a total bath. A baptism to immerse themselves completely before they could go into worship. Why? Well, because Gentiles were really unclean. They were Gentiles. So Keller in his commentary points out two things. Number one, John was requiring. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, to be immersed, to be baptized. Not a simple little wash your hands. Every single one, no matter what station in life. You know, the religious uppity-ups or, you know, or the, the dregs from the streets. All invited to come for baptism. But all must be baptized for repentance. And cleansing. In preparation for the kingdom. And there's a second thing. Which I hadn't seen before. And this is big. You couldn't do it for yourself. The difference between centuries of washings and baptisms. What was done before. Is that they always did it for themselves. They washed their own hands. They they bathed or they baptized themselves. They cleaned themselves up so they could go into the presence of God. What's John saying? No. Can't get there on your own. There are a lot of people who see Christianity as a way that if I adopt the you know, kind of the moral values and the teachings of Christianity. I'll clean my life up. And when I get my, my life cleaned up, then God and I'll be this close. And what's John saying? No way, baby. You can't get there by yourself. You can't get there by yourself. It is only through him And John says, I baptize you with water. But when he gets here, he, he must baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I would describe my personal pilgrimage in college in that way. I got to a point where I was deeply dissatisfied with my lifestyle, my way of life, you know, the unresolved guilt, the broken relationships, the string of broken relationships in my life. And so what I did was one of my friends invited me to this collegiate gathering where everyone was going to be worship. And I walked into the room and I'm going to tell you, you know, those college students, they were just singing and praising God. It was a I had never seen that before. I mean, I had kind of grown up in kind of a, in kind of like, you know, kind of like very traditional kind of West Texas church where you know what I'm saying where there wasn't a whole lot of enthusiasm. And I, I saw this enthusiasm. I was just, I was just taken in by the, by the joy and the enthusiasm of these college kids. And I started hanging out with them. And what I started doing was I started trying to conform my life to their values and their lifestyle. Right. I started trying to like bathe myself, clean myself. It took a while. It took a while till finally I got to a place where internally that hole, that void, that desolation that was inside me, that was my heart, you know what I'm saying, was screaming so loud at me that I I found it even hard to be around Christians because I was afraid it was going to show. Because there was an emptiness, there was a hole. There was a desert. There was a wilderness that was in here. And so one day, one day I stood looking in the mirror of my little rent house, a half a mile north of campus, and I called out to God from my wilderness. And within a few hours, with the help Of a friend. Named Randy Galloway. I came face to face. With him in the wilderness. Now folks. Let's be real. Jesus said blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the. The devastated ones. Blessed are the ones who are penniless. Blessed are the ones whose wells have run dry. Blessed are those who have nothing to put on the table. Nothing to bring. Blessed are they who are destitute. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so if you've been in a wilderness. Right now. If, if God has allowed circumstances to expose. Those things which really, you know, you have been putting your trust in and you building your life around and, you know, that, the, you know, that have been motivating you to get up in the morning and you realize none of that stuff really is ultimately going to bring meaning, then you start looking for him. Thank God for your wilderness and start looking for him. Last thing, John the Baptist gives us a hint as to where that road is taking Jesus, where is he going? Where is Jesus headed? Now, if, you, if a king came back in biblical times, in this day and time, you had to build a highway in order to honor that king, that foreign king who's coming into your, you know, into your country. So, therefore, you know beforehand you know roads might zigzag or go around large rock formations or or wind their way down the you know the side of a canyon and back out again but 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 if a king was coming, you you had to make level those paths, you had to straighten out the road and you had to level that road, which meant you had to take down those those rock formations that were in the middle of the highway you couldn't go around them anymore you, you had to fill in the cannon, cannon, the canyon. You you had to clear the way and make it unobstructed for the king's arrival. And this is what, this is the prophecy of Isaiah make straight his paths. Get ready to welcome the king. Make his road straight. And the word is hodos. That's the Greek for for this path, this highway, this road. And the very first time that Mark uses it in this gospel, when he speaks about the king, It's here. Taken from Isaiah. But in every reference to the way or the path, the hodos, through the rest of Mark's gospel, it points to one place, the cross. It's the path. It's the way. It's the road to the cross. This king... John, this King Mark, excuse me, Mark says, does not come to take a throne. He comes to bear a cross. That's the paradox. So, what's our response? What's our response this morning? I would suggest to you that any response that is not radical and profound is wasted. Mark doesn't give us the opportunity to say, Oh, I'm just going to adopt his teachings. He's a great teacher, and I want him to be my friend. I want to be on good terms with Jesus. He doesn't give us that opportunity, does he? He says... He is Messiah. He is King, anointed one. He is the Son of God. He is God Himself coming into Jerusalem, coming into our lives. That is transformational, that changes everything. And so typically what you see in Mark's gospel, and what is not so untypical even today, what you see in Mark's gospel is the response of the religious leaders who are you know, very much into <clears throat> keeping rules and bathing themselves. They hate him. They're not nonchalant about it. They will commit early, as early as chapter 2, to try to kill him. They hate him. So our response will be either (laughs) that we will have to push him off. We will have to run, run as fast as we can. Or we could, we could bow before him and surrender. We could say, Lord, thank you for the experience in the wilderness and what it taught me. And now I put all that aside and I trust in you and you alone. Let's pray.